I'm Kari Rowe, and you're listening to the Foreign Saints Podcast, a pulse check for those of us that die daily. I'm back. It's been two weeks. Meant to have an episode up last week, but the entire house came down with one of the nastiest stomach bugs that we've ever experienced. Uh, so I was not able to put an episode up, didn't get into work. It was just hunkered down, ride it out. Um, but we're back. Uh, we're back. I'm feeling a lot better. Getting back to work tomorrow. Was able to do Bible study. Um, was able to do Bible study with the crew earlier this week. And so I'm glad to be getting back into Matthew. This week in Matthew, uh, you probably see it in the title of the episode, but a couple of major points that we'll be hitting today is you could say the, the theology of decision making, right? A theological framework for making decisions here in the first half. And then in the back half, we'll be going over who was John the Baptist? What was his ministry about? And what did he mean when he said repentance? What did John the Baptist mean when he called people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a really good study, chock full of Old Testament as usual here in Matthew. So without further ado, uh, let's get into it. So starting in Matthew chapter two, we're going to finish out the second chapter and take a fair bite out of the third. So starting in verse 19 of chapter two and reading unto the end, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, there's a lot there, especially that end bit with um, the fulfillment about the Nazarene. Uh, it works out in a way different than what you might expect as so much in the Bible does. But uh, my main point for this first half, like I said, is the the theology of decision making, um, divine counsel and common sense. All right. So to unpack uh, what I mean by that, let's just take it uh, line by line, right? As usual, if possible, have a Bible or Bible app with you. will make following along a lot easier when you've got the audio and, uh, you know, and the visual right there in front of you. Um, but it's okay if you listen to this stuff while you drive or whatever. I do the same thing with my own favorite podcasts. But when you consider the instruction that was given to Joseph, right, you could say it was pretty vague, right? He just told him, go to the land of Israel, right? Take Jesus, take Mary, go back to Israel. He doesn't actually specify where. He just mentions the nation, right? Reason being, 
The murderous ones are dead. The ones that want to see Jesus dead are themselves dead. Um, and just, you know, so we see God utilizing dreams again uh, to guide Joseph. And interestingly enough, uh, we also see death here as a limiter on the sinful tyrant, right? I mean, it's interesting to think that Jesus came in part to rescue us from death. But until then, death is like the ultimate restriction on how bad any one man can become, right? As bad as Hitler was, he had to die, right? As bad as uh, Pol Pot, as bad as some of these despots through history have been, they do have to die eventually. And you could say, well, that feels like it's a long way off. And indeed, it, it, it can be. It definitely can be, right? Despots live short lives. Despots live long lives, right? But they don't live forever. And it just, <clears throat> it's just interesting to call back to that scene in the garden when God kicks Adam and Eve out the garden and he establishes that flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life, right? Lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state, eternal life in a rebellious state. Could you imagine that? The world just filling up with people whose evil couldn't be matched, wouldn't be matched, right? I mean, you think this world is bad now, but under that sort of uh, under that sort of reality, our world would be way worse than it is right now. So you see the general providence of God here in the death of Herod, right? Even the tyranny of a wicked false king can't last forever, right? Because only Jesus lasts forever. And like I said, again, God utilizing dreams to guide Joseph. Um, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is its point. And we see Joseph aided in serving Christ by this dream, not continuously getting wrapped up in the prophetic, right? The prophetic element of Joseph's life aided Joseph's real life, physical, tangible service to God. And people can go off the rails with prophecy in that way. Um, you know, seeing dreams and uh, seeing visions and stuff like that. You can have people whose entire ministries are, are wrapped up in the next vision, the next uh, thing that God says, right? Always wanting to hear from God in dramatic ways, but never seemingly focusing the ministry on serving God in dramatic ways. Not even dramatic, just regular, mundane, faithful ways, right? And I just want to point that out in Joseph's life, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if what you care about is the prophetic, then focus on building the church, focus on the Great Commission. You'll see God move. 
you'll see God move in, in powerful ways as you are about what he is about. And Joseph encountered these big moves of God as he was himself serving Jesus, as he was himself pouring his life out for the sake of more and more Jesus. And that's a pattern that we should follow for sure. Uh, verse 22, um, let me scan down here. Yeah, in verse 22, um, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. <coughs> it, <coughs> oh man, oh, excuse me, listeners, still got a little bit of that kind of caught up in, kind of caught up in my chest. Uh, you probably hear it in just in the way I'm talking, but, uh, yeah, yeah, just, uh, just bear with me. But as I was saying in verse 22, it seems to me that Joseph seemed to want to go to Judea. Like, again, God told him Israel. <clears throat> he didn't give him something specific. And Jerusalem, the city of the king, <clears throat> is in Judea. Right? Whew. But he didn't want to go there because of Archelaus. And Archelaus... <coughs> Ooh, man. And he didn't want to go there because of Archelaus. Archelaus being the son of Herod. And Archelaus was just as bad as his father, but not as keen as far as the politics go. Right. And once Joseph learned about that, he was definitely afraid to go there. That's where common sense comes in. Right. <clears throat> yes. Divine counsel says go to Israel. Common sense says, yeah, but God didn't tell me where in Israel. And I want to go to Jerusalem because that's where the kings of Israel have reigned from. And Jesus is king. It makes sense to want to raise him near Jerusalem. But the situation in the natural is, well, unwise, to put it simply, right? And Joseph, instead of trying to, <clears throat> instead of trying to super spiritualize an unwise practical decision, he understands that true spirituality encompasses the practical. It does not discard it, right? It is the fool that sees danger and does not change his course. That is the book of Proverbs, right? It is the fool that sees danger and does not correct his course, <coughs> but goes on ahead to destruction. And Joseph was not about to go on ahead to destruction, so he changes his course <coughs> and goes on ahead to Nazareth. And in that way, Joseph's common sense, as he was following divine counsel combined, and it ends up fulfilling prophecy. It ends up fulfilling themes in the scripture. Right? So we got to have a better, we have a more nuanced understanding of what it means to make wise decisions in 
you know, just, just as Christians, right? Um, <clears throat> whew, man, that was, like I said, sorry about all that coughing and hacking. I'm trying here. But you could say that healthy decision-making comes from thinking critically with a knee bent for God. It is critical thinking while in submission to the counsel of God, while in submission to the guidance of God, right? It's not that it's not that you turn your brain off, and that's a lot of times how people think. Um, sometimes in the church, a lot of times out of the church, you know, it's just oh, you know, if I was a Christian, I just have to leave my brain at the door all the time and just <clears throat> ask God for everything, and He would tell me, and I wouldn't think about anything. No, that, that's that's not true. That that's not how anyone in the Bible ever lived their walk of faith with God. That is how naysayers will want to paint Christianity. But Christian, you don't have to feel intimidated by idiots that don't know what they're talking about, right? By people that <clears throat> don't want to understand what the Bible actually has to say about these things. And then want to turn around and mock you in your attempt to walk these things out. You don't, you don't have to pay that any attention. You don't have to feel intimidated by that. You don't have to feel put down by that. It's, it's, it's the blind mocking the man who can finally see and is trying to work out how to walk with new sight, right? You don't, you don't have to worry about that. And this concept of critical thinking while in submission to the guidance of God is a concept that not just in Matthew, but just throughout the Bible, right? You can find, um, you find examples of this in every book of the Bible, right? The book of Romans tells us that all sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And 2 Timothy chapter 1 tells us that this Spirit who guides us has given you a spirit has given you a demeanor of power, of love, and of self-control. Some translations will say sound mind instead of self-control, <clears throat> right? Sound mind, self-control. These things are gifts of God to his people. They're, they're fruit of walking with God, really. Um, they're fruit of maturity, right? The mature Christian knows how to use the grace of God gifted to him in the cross to calm his mind and to think rationally and to think critically about situations that he is in and apply the wisdom of God that he has learned over the years, studying the scripture, walking with God, <coughs> um, soaking it in from fellowship with the body of Christ around him, right? He's learned how to calmly apply this wisdom into real tangible areas of his life to come up with real tangible ways of walking, real tangible solutions to problems, and so be able to be a blessing to so many in his life, right? That is what I would say is the theology of decision-making, right? You don't make God more specific than what he said. Because that's where a lot of us can, we can kind of strangle ourselves, 
for the freedom that God has given us, right? God told Joseph, go back to Israel, right? Within that boundary, Israel, <clears throat> it seems to me that Joseph had all the freedom to go where he wanted to go. But Joseph, being wise, being wise, right, ends up walking directly into the plan of God for him and for his family and for Jesus, right? And I wouldn't say I I wouldn't be surprised if Joseph didn't feel any, you know, he didn't he didn't feel any kind of glow in his soul. You know, he's he's just planning. You know, he's just taking care of business like a man. You know, I'm not gonna take my family somewhere where a bloodthirsty tyrant's bloodthirsty son is reigning. I'm I'm not gonna do that. I would like to do that, but I'm not gonna do that. Right, we're going to go to Nazareth. We're going to go somewhere that is overlooked. We're going to go somewhere that is not seen as much of anything. Then we should be able to stay under the radar until the next phase of this thing kicks off, right? <clears throat> and this idea applies to so much in our life, right? When people are asking, oh, what does God want me to do? with my life well you have your orders right you have your orders love god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself right you've got your two commands love god with everything that you've got <clears throat> love your neighbor as yourself right the first command is greater than the second command <clears throat> it gives context to the second command Right. Great Commission, take this gospel to the ends of the earth, make disciples of all nations. Right? Right? Have self-control over your own bodies, right? Thessalonians. Right? If you're just reading the New Testament, Christian, you'll find very clear statements of what God's will for your life is, and you'll find <clears throat> a lot of times to our immature frustration, I would say, like Joseph, that these commands are sometimes as big and narrow as Israel, right? Go to Israel. Well, okay, that's more narrow than somewhere on earth, to be sure, but it's not as specific as town. It's not as specific as street. It's not as specific as house. Not to say that God isn't that specific at times. With Meredith and I, he was that specific with this particular house, but he's, but he's not always been. He's not always been, <clears throat> I would say most of the time in life, it's critical thinking under submission of God, right? And so just for me, right, what does that look like, right? Well, like I said, I mentioned a handful of those commands, and that's part of where this podcast came from, right? Make disciples of all nations to the best of your ability, right? Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, People would really be benefited by a podcast with solid teaching, by a podcast with, um, you know, a mature Christian couple that gives mature uh, breakdown of topics and culture, right? That's part of where this podcast came from, right? <clears throat> now, did I feel God leading me in that direction? Yes. But a good portion of this has been critical thinking, right? Like, I, I could have done this on YouTube, and I was doing this on YouTube for a time, but I moved to Apple Podcasts and Spotify because I felt like I could make content better, right? That's a 
better, more quicker, less cumbersome on the rest of the family unit, right? That's critical thinking while under the submission of God, <clears throat> right? What job does God want you to do? I don't know. He may have something specific for you in mind. He might just want you to make a wise decision with where you're at in life, right? Right? The job where you can say, yes, I am loving God and I am loving my neighbor as myself. It doesn't have to look like something crazy. It doesn't have to be, you know, something like what I do for a living, right? Taking care of patients. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Taking a trash out fits the bill too, right? I mean, is it not loving to God and neighbor to work to keep a clean, healthy, uh, sanitary community? You know, so I mean, like, if we just didn't think so wooden about our own decision making and realized the freedom that God gives us, desiring us to enjoy that freedom in Christ, desiring us to uh, enjoy the joy of being a co-worker, a co-laborer with him in the world, if we understood that God desires us to enjoy the joy of making wise decisions, right? <clears throat> because employing wisdom well has a return of joy, has a return of peace to the one that does it, right? He wants you to enjoy these things. He wants to grow you up <clears throat> unto a full maturity in Christ, doesn't want to have to move you around like a puppet all the time. He wants obedience, yes. But he wants you to be able to think critically and think with wisdom as well. And we see that in the life of Joseph. And we'll see that, uh, <clears throat> you know, we'll see that moving forward in the Gospels too. I'll do my best to point it out where it appears. Um, but secondly, right... Um, second thing I wanted to mention here is the Nazareth bit, right? When it says that it was, uh, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is one of the tougher, this is perhaps one of the toughest, if not the toughest, <laughs> um, bit of fulfillment that Matthew gives us and doing a lot of reading on it. <clears throat> doing a lot of reading on it to me it seems like this is more thematic fulfillment right um the closest thing you might find to a direct fulfillment here is isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 where it talks about a branch uh being raised up for jesse and you could say well what the nazarene Na nazareth isn't even mentioned there <clears throat> yes and no the word for branch in hebrew is netzir right and you can hear phonetically the similarities between Netzir and Nazareth, right? Netzareth, Nazareth, right? Like you, you can you, you can hear the phonetic similarities there. And <clears throat> so depending on what Matthew means and can, you know, with the pattern of a handful of these fulfillments down, especially the two we looked at last episode, right? Um, Hosea 11.1. And that poem in Jeremiah uh, talking about Rachel weeping from her burial site in Ramah. I think it's safe to say that he might have a couple of different things in mind at the same time. Right? Now, there's the direct fulfillment of just, yeah, he'll be called a Nazarene. Right? He'll come from 
the place of branches, you could say, Nazareth, because he is the branch raised up. He is the netseer raised up by God, right? <clears throat> you could say it's thematic because branches, though things of life are not in and of themselves big, mighty things, they're easy to ignore, easy to be stepped on and broken, right? And you could say that was true in a sense of Jesus, right? He wasn't, he didn't come big and mighty. And he, and we know he came to be broken and stepped on that we would have life, right? So thematically, there is a fulfillment in Jesus coming from Nazareth, right? Thematic tie-ins to who he is in this first coming, what his mission was going to be. And I think Matthew has all of that in mind um, when he brings that up. You know, when he brings up, uh, yeah, what the prophets spoke would be fulfilled. He'd be called a Nazarene, right? You're not going to find a specific text in the Old Testament saying that he'll come from Nazareth, to the best of my knowledge and searching, <clears throat> right? But you will find plenty of passages talking about the Messiah being overlooked. You will find quite a few passages, especially in Isaiah, where you're talking about the Messiah being broken for the sins of the people, right? So, you know, I think this is another one of those thematic fulfillments that Matthew uh, Matthew very much seems to love to be going for here, especially in these first few chapters of the gospel. Um, so again, you know, just another example of the Old Testament, <clears throat> the Bible really, being more artistic, God being more artistic literarily than we oftentimes like to think in our practice of Christianity as we're trying to avoid certain heretical pitfalls. We're completely closing our eyes to how God utilizes the literary arts within the text of Scripture to highlight aspects of who Jesus is, to better uh, to help us better understand right theology of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, so yeah, you know, don't, uh, don't close your eyes to the creator God being creative with, uh, with his text and how he weaves themes, uh, throughout the Bible. Right. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what I got here for the first half. Um, again, just want to encourage you as we move into our intermission into the second half here, right? Decision-making in life is a very difficult thing, but we oftentimes make it way more difficult by adding extra specificity and restraints that God never specified to us, right? And this, I think, highlights the importance of the prayer closet, right? If you're going to be thinking critically in submission to God's will, well, you can't do that if you don't know God's will to be in submission to, right? You got to be prayed up, got to be regularly prayed up, right? Not just for constant forgiveness, but also prayed up just to, just to know who he is, just for guidance, right? The Spirit of God leads those that are the sons of God. Do you pray <clears throat> for God to lead you? Do you pray for to be open, to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit has to say to you today, right? Do you check the posture of your soul to make sure that you have ears to hear today? Are you making a conscious effort to make it natural, to walk in the supernatural, right? Are you reading the word to know what he said, 
to know what his will is. You know, these 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 are things, these are spiritual disciplines that we have to have in place if our critical thinking is going to be in submission to the one true God, right? And with that, uh, I say bring on the intermission, and we will be right back with the show. The nation of Benin, definitely hostile. Benin is a small country bordering western Nigeria. It is the birthplace of voodoo, and Christianity is viewed by many in the north as a threat to their traditional beliefs. Every village and many homes in the north have a designated place for animal sacrifice, and sometimes human sacrifice. Voodoo is an official religion, and Voodoo Day is a public holiday. Witchcraft is deeply ingrained in the local culture and is openly practiced. Christianity is considered a foreign religion that steals a community's youth from being properly initiated into the local tribes. Every village chief serves as both a political leader and a voodoo priest. The country is about 30% Christian, including 8% evangelical. Nearly 40% practice ethnic religions, and another 30% are Muslim. Believers are persecuted by their family and community. Persecution is prevalent in the north. New converts to Christianity are beaten and sometimes killed, while church buildings are routinely destroyed. Villages keep evangelists out and prevent construction of new churches. Bibles are available, but they are hard to find in rural areas. Most of Voice of the Martyrs' work involves urgent persecution response, providing food, shelter, and personal items for individuals who have been driven from their homes. They're also providing Bibles in a region where most people practice voodoo. Pray for those brothers and sisters, yeah? And uh, remember that. <laughs> remember that next time someone tells you that, you know, this voodoo, witchcraft, wicked stuff is harmless. You know, there's a... There's real demons, there's real devils behind that. There's real dark spiritual powers behind that. And it's this exact nonsense that creates the need for the gospel, right? Because people are worshiping false gods and they don't know what it is to worship the light, to worship the truth. So pray that the gospel goes forward there and pray that we would remember their chains and remember their suffering. Let's keep moving forward. When you're faced with the unknown, keep doing what you know to do. Love others, worship God, obey his word, and work on strengthening your character in his righteousness. The Bible says that God will show you the next step when you need it. God does not reveal everything about his will for you, right? He didn't tell Joseph everything up front, but he does reveal everything you need to know to live for him now. You can trust him with each step. <clears throat> Proverbs 2, 3 to 6. Cry out for insight and understanding. Search for them as you would for lost money or hidden treasure. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord 
and you will gain knowledge of God for the Lord grants wisdom. The first step in knowing your calling is to tune your ears to hear God when he calls. Just as a piano is tuned against a standard set of musical notes, so we get in tune with God as we examine our lives against the standards for living found in the Bible. As God communicates to you through the Bible, you will begin to hear or discern spiritually just what he wants of you. As your spiritual hearing is enhanced, you'll become a good listener with ears to hear, as Jesus would say able to hear clearly when God calls you to a certain task that he has reserved just for you. Would God say that you are a good listener? Well, foreign saint, you can be. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So let's get back to lighting that path. Yeah, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to be getting into Matthew chapter 3 now. Uh, Starting from verse 1, we will be going all the way down through the end of verse 12. So I'm going to read it now. Just load it into our minds and then we'll see what we can see. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, quote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, unquote. Now, <clears throat> John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, this is a, you know, tougher passage to land on, but always a good passage for the second half, right? Kind of always want to, always want to have the second half maybe be something a bit more of a prod, uh, you know, to leave people with. But let's get into it, right? Uh, The main point for this second half is the true John the Baptist. The true John the Baptist, right? 
So again, just getting our setting, getting our time in those days, he mentions in verse 1. And I would say those days would be the time of Jesus coming to Nazareth as a boy up until Jesus' public ministry um, began. You know, that would that would seem to be the time. Um, or, yeah, that would seem to be about the time. Maybe not. Could be a bit closer to Jesus' time. Again, him and John the Baptist would have been the same age, right? Um, but it's just to say that John the Baptist was doing his thing before uh, Jesus stepped on the scene as an active voice in ministry. It makes sense. You know, he's preparing the way. He's the herald, preparing the way for the king. Um, he's a prophet, which sounds kind of weird to say because we usually think of, we usually relegate prophets in our mind to the territory of the Old Testament. Um, but John is the one Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. You know, like his like his prophetic ministry was legit. He was a prophet in the same vein as Isaiah, the same vein as Jeremiah. Um, you know, he was a prophet just like them. They should have been listening just like them. Um, <clears throat> should have they should have been listening to him just like they should have been listening to all those others. And his message is repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming. Indeed, he's already here, says John the Baptist. Right? The Lord's visitation is soon and also now at the same time. So prepare, right? Because the one true king is coming for a visit. Right? And that's why Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, well, th this verse is just verse 3, but the passage he's taking this from is verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, prepare, make straight, uh, speaking from Isaiah. I'm saying this now so that way you guys can go and look at uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. I'm not going to Isaiah 40 right now, but I wrote down some key phrases from that section, right? Prepare, make straight. Um, every valley is lifted up, mountain and hill made low, uneven ground, level and plain, right? All of this language is speaking in the heart, right? Prepare and make straight your heart. Be ready to receive the king when he comes, when he reveals himself, right? Every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. Again, this is speaking in the heart. The lowly will be lifted up as the proud are made low. And people, people are weird with their misconceptions, man. People will oftentimes say that Jesus was an advocate for the poor and against and like an enemy to the rich. And uh, in stereotypical terms, I guess you could say that's true, I guess. But it's more scriptural to say he's an advocate for the humble and repentant. And he is an enemy to the proud and arrogant. And the truth of human nature is that proud and humble people can come at every socioeconomic level. The poor can be proud in their sin. And the man rich with a lot of monetary wealth can be humble before God. 
right? That's why this is all about what's going on in your heart. Because what can happen sometimes is we can look at people, <clears throat> and people do this all the time, do this all the time, right? People look at people that have more than they do, and they define them as arrogant, <laughs> right? Right? They, they, they define poor as anything me and below is poor. And so I must have the smile of God upon me because God is for the poor, because blessed to the poor, right? And those evil rich, those evil rich will have their day. And I'm like, well, depending on how we measure this, you might be the evil rich person. Like, I'm just saying you might be. But more to the point, God just doesn't care about those things the way that we do, right? He wants humility. He wants repentance, right? As a first responder during my time as a first responder, I have seen the poorest of people. I have seen poor, destitute, homeless people that have been strung out on drugs. I've had the privilege of leading uh, at least one to Christ. Um, you know, in the last couple of days before her death, I have seen so many more. I have seen so many more homeless people reject, proudly reject the offer of forgiveness that Jesus gives and <clears throat> end up going to their deaths of fentanyl or whatever, just completely wrapped up in their sin. And I've seen rich people have the same thing happen to them, right? <clears throat> right, I've seen it, you know? I've seen rich people wrapped up in their sin end up losing their own life because of it. And I've seen rich people humble themselves before God and be saved, right? God truly is not a respecter of persons in the way that we are, right? You don't get a pass if you're homeless, but you also cannot bribe the king of the universe if you have money, right? He looks at the heart. Is there repentance? Is there faith? Is there trust in my son for forgiveness? Are they trusting me? That is what John the Baptist is preparing Israel for. He's preparing them to trust in their king. And verse 5 in Isaiah chapter 40 talks about the glory of the Lord being revealed and all flesh shall, shall see this happen, right? And this is very clearly, very clearly fulfilled in Jesus, right? In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right, All flesh was able to see the glory of the Lord, the glory of God revealed in Jesus. We are meant to see the glory of the Lord revealed in and through Jesus Christ. Right, And Jesus knew that about himself. That's why towards the end of his life in John's gospel, he could say, anyone that has seen me has seen the Father, because I am the one that reveals the glory of the Father to those that otherwise would not know him. Right, that that's literally what I do, says Jesus. <clears throat> we move on to verse four here in Matthew, right, where it starts to talk about um, his clothing, right? 
camel's hair and a leather belt, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, diet of locusts and wild honey, right? Wild looking cat. And, you know, I think people get a bit reckless. I definitely do believe people get very reckless with how they characterize John the Baptist, right? It's like, okay, garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, you know, popping locusts and wild honey. Right down in the Bible Belt, there is definitely a tendency to make him out to be, you know, one of the country bumpkin kind of folk. You know what I mean? There's a tendency to kind of redneck John the Baptist. And I do believe that's to completely miss the point of his attire and his diet. I think that completely misses the point and mischaracterizes him, right? On the other end of things, on the scholarly end of things, there's a uh, there's a view out there um, that would advocate that John the Baptist was an Essene Jew. E-S-S-E-N-E, Essene Jew. Um, uh, interesting sect of guys. Um, the Dead Sea, some of the, I shouldn't say all, but a, a portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that we've been able to dig up are only dug up because, you know, they, uh, you know, squirreled them away. <clears throat> but people would say that John was an Essene Jew for much the same reasons. Uh, and again, I think that is also a mischaracterization of who he is, <clears throat> right? I mean, firstly, from the Essene side of things, that Essene sect, um, they, they believe some weird things that John the Baptist, as a follower of the one true God, um, definitely would not have believed, right? The Essenes uh, were not fans of reproduction, weren't fans of children. John the Baptist definitely would not have had that view, right? So to say Essene, I think, is just getting a bit too crazy on the scholarly end of things and not letting a prophet be a prophet, on the popular end of things, we make John out to be this um, unrefined, <clears throat> uh, unsophisticated um, man. And I'm not making him out to be a man of high society or nothing, but um, to say that to say that he was, uh, you know, an unsophisticated cat, I think, is to I can just misunderstand what he was about. Right, his clothing the garment of camel's hair and the leather belt, right? That's the sort of clothing that marks you as a prophet, and especially a prophet like Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 specifically tell us, <clears throat> you can look this up, specifically tell us that John the Baptist will go in the power of Elijah to make a people prepared for the Lord's visitation. Specific prophecy over John's life before John is born, right? To his father, right? So, no, I no, I just think John the Baptist knew what his ministry was, right? His dad told him what the prophecy was. God revealed it to him personally, and he's playing his part, right? I'm going in the power of Elijah to prepare the people for repentance and faith when the king comes. And so I will wear <clears throat> the attire, of a prophet. I mean, you look through the Old Testament. The prophets weren't wearing kingly attire. The prophets weren't wearing fancy clothes, right? There was no Avatar the Last Airbender amazing-looking robes, 
All right. <clears throat> These guys oftentimes did not look the part in comparison to the scribes and teachers and religious leaders of their day. Not to say that the religious leaders of their day were always bad, <coughs> but, ooh, but oh, for the biblical prophets, it definitely seemed that way. Oh, excuse me real quick. <coughs> hmm. Right? So his clothing marks him as a prophet. His diet, the locusts and wild honey, mark him as a man faithful to the law of Moses. And you would say, what? John the Baptist? Faithful to the law of Moses? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Grace hadn't been instituted yet. The law of Moses was still in effect at this time. <clears throat> and so if you were a prophet of God, you had to be living in obedience to that, boss. Right? Locusts and wild honey. Look at the dietary laws in Leviticus. It's kosher. Right? <clears throat> so to point out that he's eating locusts and wild honey is not a statement of how wild this man was. Not a statement necessarily of his rugged manhood. It's a statement of his devoted obedience to the law of Moses. It's a statement of his love for God and obedience to God. He did not come to abolish the law, just like Jesus will say later on in Matthew 5 that he also did not come to abolish the law. All right, we got to stop bad-mouthing the Old Testament like that. Right? Now, John's place of ministry, the wilderness, marked that what he was preparing would not be subservient to the Old Testament ways of the temple, though, as I said before, his diet, his office, both signify that he is not anti-temple. He is not anti-Semitic. He is not anti-Jew. <clears throat> but he was anti-Rabbinic Judaism. Not the same thing as the Judaism of the Old Testament, right? And rabbinic Judaism wasn't even something that was in full swing in John the Baptist day because they had a temple, but they did have a lot of additions to the law of Moses that were not God-sanctioned, right? And so, you see, everything that made John the Baptist distinctive and everything that makes him look like a weirdo to us has a purpose, right? That weird clothing... That weird clothing shows that he's a prophet, right? Why do you think why do you think it says that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him and were being baptized by him, right? Because they recognized his office as prophet. Right? They recognized <coughs> the choosing of God on his life for the office of prophet. Right? If you're going to pay attention to the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you're going to pay attention to your synagogue leader, which are not inherently sinful things, but if you're going to pay attention to those offices, you got to pay attention to the office of prophet because the prophet's office outranks them all. <clears throat> right? Like until Jesus comes, you know, until Jesus comes and really starts teaching publicly. John the Baptist, spiritually speaking, is, you could say, quote-unquote, top dog in that sense of 
eh, you know, if, if all these teachers are disagreeing, who do I listen to? Well, you listen to the active prophet. That's who you listen to. <clears throat> right? And that was that was who John was. All right? So again, just to repeat, right? His clothing marks him as a prophet in the same vein as Elijah. His diet marks him as faithful to the law of Moses. It also marks that he does not uh, hate the law. And his place of ministry in the wilderness marks that what he is preparing them for will not be subservient to that Old Testament that's attached to the temple, right? What I'm preparing you for, you won't need a temple for. That's why we're not at the temple, says the prophet, right? <clears throat> now, it, now, the wilderness also invokes imagery from the book of Exodus of God moving his people through wilderness to the Jordan as he saves them, right? And that's what's happening again, right? Calling you back into the wilderness, right? <clears throat> to remind you that you've, in a sense, never left the wilderness. You've never really left the wilderness of sin, O Israel. That's why I'm sending my son. That's why the king is coming. Because his people need saving from their sins. And the prophet's job, this prophet's job, is to prepare them for God to personally call them back to himself. Right? So John the Baptist, right? He's not a guy who had a problem with religious people. Right? How could he? He's a prophet. Right? He had a problem with some religious people. But he didn't have a problem with religious people as a category. He himself was a religious Jew. He held a religious office, the highest uh, religious office in Judaism, right? He held, uh, he was faithful to the law of Moses, even down to what he ate as he lived in the wilderness. And his entire life was wrapped up in ministry and being a revival preacher. All right, he was a religious cat, however you want to slice it. <clears throat> um, John the Baptist was not a guy who just ate weird stuff to be weird. We talked about that, right? And John the Baptist was not a guy who lived a wasted life. His was a purposed life, right? <clears throat> the last of the prophets and the greatest of the prophets, short of Jesus himself, right? The only prophet that was able to say he's here instead of He's coming, right? Every other prophet in the Old Testament said he's coming. Moses said, there's a prophet coming like me, right? Isaiah said, there's a suffering servant that is on the way. Jeremiah said, God is going to raise up a righteous branch, a net seer, right? John the Baptist was able to say, and he's here. So Israel, prepare, right? The greatest of the prophets, because he had the greatest thing to say, He's not just coming, but he's finally here, right? <clears throat> Verses 6 to 10, uh, we see the people are confessing their sins while the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't, right? Verse 7, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he addresses them as brood of vipers and asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? and commands them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, this is a man that understood his office, right? Right. There aren't many people 
Like, like no one's talking to a Pharisee or a Sadducee this way, right? P people aren't doing that. But John the Baptist is why? Because he understands, right? He's not, he's not haughty. He's not prideful himself. In himself, he just understands. No, I had a job <clears throat> to call you to repentance. Oh Pharisee, oh Sadducee, right? And as long as I'm operating in that sphere, right, I do have authority of the king to command you to do that. Yes, do repent of your sins, right? But the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't used to being anything less than top of the totem pole and top of the pecking order. And we'll see that that <clears throat> becomes their undoing in the future. But if you're not confessing your sins, again, like the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't, then what's your reason for just hanging around Jesus, for just hanging around his people, right? If you're interested, if you're seeking, that's one thing. But the Pharisees aren't interested in seeking. They're interested in fault-finding. They're interested in being in opposition to whatever's happening here, right? And so John the Baptist, he doesn't play, he doesn't play games with them. You guys are a brood of vipers because you're coming here not to repent, but to prey on what's happening here like a bunch of snakes. All right, repent. <clears throat> tells him straight up. He tells him straight up not to presume upon the holiness of their ancestor Abraham to gain eternal life. And the same is true with us, right? You don't get in because your granddad was a preacher. You don't get in because the rest of your family is saved. I've had that conversation so many times, right? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, okay, all right. All right, well, I grew up in a home that drinks coffee myself. Doesn't mean I've ever drank coffee, right? Means I've probably heard about coffee. But just because I grew up around a bunch of coffee drinkers doesn't mean I ever drank coffee myself. Just because you grew up a around a bunch of Jesus followers doesn't mean that you ever followed Jesus. Doesn't mean that you ever had any desire or will to repent. Right, And so John pronounces coming judgment. The axe is laid to the root of the trees even now. That's them, dude. Right? That's them. The root of the trees? It's the Pharisees' job to water Israel. It's, it's their job to, to tend to the flock of God. And he's saying, no, the axe is being laid to you guys even now. Even now, wheels are being set in motion by God. Um, for your undoing, right? So repent, because the king is coming, and indeed, he's already here. He's already here. Uh, verse 11, uh, John says he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. Right? Again, like his opinion of Jesus is way higher than a lot of modern people's opinions of Jesus, right? <clears throat> Not just the, and this is a guy who can literally say Jesus is in my family. Like when I go to Thanksgiving, Jesus is at the table, <clears throat> right? I'm passing him the stuffing on Thanksgiving, right? John the Baptist could be a guy to be like, oh yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. But that's that's not who he was. It's not who he was. I mean, he was like, nah, nah, we're friends, but but he's the king. We're family, but but he's the king, and I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes, man. He's God, right? In his humanity, we're family, but in his deity, that's my creator. 
No, man, that's that's heavy. That's heavy. But we can't miss what the Baptist says in verse 12, right? <clears throat> his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, right? Jesus will gather his own and burn the rest. That is John's message, and it should be ours too. It should be ours too, right? <clears throat> and in Luke chapter 3, uh, we actually see what John means when he talks about bearing fruit, right? He means your actions got to look the part, right? If you're a tax collector whose sin has been stealing people's money wrongfully, well, when you come and if I baptize you for repentance, when you go out away from here, I should see you no longer stealing from people, says John. If you're a Roman soldier, right, whose job it is to police police uh, the people, right, then when I baptize you for repentance, when you walk away from here, I should see you no longer using your authority to abuse those in your jurisdiction. I should see you being content with your wages and not using your ability as a, as a peace officer to fatten your own pockets says John the Baptist, right? This this repentance actually has to look like something, right? <clears throat> Jesus is coming, and he is the true baptizer, right? Baptizing just means to immerse. It just means to fully submerge something into something else, right? <clears throat> John submerged people in water, but he says, hey, Jesus is coming, and he's going to submerge people in fire, right? <clears throat> He's going to submerge people in one of two things. Either he will fully submerge you in the Holy Spirit for salvation, or he will fully submerge you in the flames of hell, right? In the flames of judgment. If hell is a word you don't like, then say flames of judgment, right? But you're going to be fully covered in something. You get to pick that something, but <clears throat> Jesus is coming and he's, going to, and he's going to submerge all of us. Is it going to be in salvation? There isn't going to be in judgment. You choose. You choose, right? <clears throat> you know, that's all I got for this week. We'll be finishing out three and getting into four next week, man. But let that, you know, meditate on that, man. Meditate on that and carry the gospel to somebody this week, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because he is one and he has saved us. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because just like you were purchased by the blood of Christ, Jesus went to the cross to save that person too. So love them all the same. Yeah? Peace.